we've never seen anything like this in that it is a global phenomenon. And, you know, that's that's the other side of a world economy is that we are reliant on one another um, for better or for worse. And in this circumstance, I mean, literally, the global economy is collapsing. Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conway. It's Friday, October 31st. Happy Halloween. It's about 1.55 p.m. here in New York City. Adam, I don't think we've ever recorded this podcast so early. It is very early. It's, it's Halloween. We have some of our coworkers dressed as trees and ballerinas. Um, and we have Ivanka Trump there at the top of the podcast dressed as a global economist. I, I mean, things are bad out there, but I don't know, total global economic collapse, Adam? Uh, I think that that's what it felt like it might be a month ago. It, it's not feeling like we're going there right now. Yeah, I'm not um, so. And in fact, uh, if we move on over to the planet money indicators as uh, as we do, um, you know, I think there's going to be a time in the not too distant future where the TED spread is no longer a planet money indicator. I think it's going to fall down to reasonable levels before long, but we're not there yet. So um, the the, the Good news is that LIBOR keeps falling. LIBOR, LIBOR would be? LIBOR is the rate that um, overseas banks – well, LIBOR is a lot of things. But we're talking about three-month dollar LIBOR, which is the rate that uh, banks use to uh, borrow uh, money, lend and borrow money. It's the London Interbank, Interbank offering Rate. Offered rate. So, Some people do say offering rate. Yeah, yeah, we should look that up. So, so uh, it it is a component of the TED spread. The TED spread today is down to two point six. Um, go TED spread. Go TED spread. It's down about seven, almost eight percent since yesterday. So that 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 is good to see. You know, we had what they call a dead cat bounce. It it was really high, almost to close to five. Bounced down, then peaked up again a little bit, and then is now heading down. Um, so, so you know, as we always say, we want to see that way, way, way lower. Um, now, I am looking at an out-of-date LIBOR rate. This is embarrassing. But, um, they're over, very slow about changing that the, thing. They're slow about changing it. LIBOR is a weird thing because it doesn't trade on a daily base uh, on an hour-by-hour -hour basis. It's a couple guys in London – wake up every morning or gals, I'm not quite sure, and, uh, you know, and, and set the rate. They call around a bunch of banks and they set the rate. It is right now at 3.03. .03. That's down a full 25% from a month ago, um, but still up above where you want it to be. Uh, Three-month LIBOR is, is traded as a spread off of Treasury bills, uh, and uh, so that's what the TED spread refers to. But it is coming down. That That is good news. So, you guys, we've been working... Oh, wait. What? Sorry. <laughs> the other part of Planet Money Indicator, normally we would be calling Will Aston Reese and Tom Corona. I have not been able to talk to them mostly this week, which I was hoping was a good sign that they were so busy borrowing and lending money uh, between banks that, that the credit markets were back to full flow and we just couldn't reach them. I did reach a guy named Chris over there at Tradition Asia Securities, and he said... 
not not so lucky. This week is better than last week. Uh, they are trading a few billion dollars here and there. But as Chris said, a billion dollars to us is like a dollar to normal people. It's just not a lot of money. So it's a little bit better than last week, but nowhere near the normal flow of money from bank to bank right. that we'd like to see. Whatever they're doing over there, we in here are working on a project we're working on this project so hard that I don't know if I know which way is up or down. But you were I'm, here till eleven last yeah, night. Yeah, last night. And Caitlin's been here a couple of nights longer than that. So today, Caitlin Kenny, our remarkably wonderful producer here at Planet Money, we're going to do what journalists do when they don't know what else to uh, to do. We are going to go heavy and big on credit default swaps today. We have this piece from our friend Alex Bloomberg from This American Life. And Planet Money. And Planet Money. It aired last night. The first part of it aired Thursday night on All Things Considered. The second part is going to air this evening on All Things Considered. And we just don't want you to miss it. And I think you mean Alex Bloomberg from Chicago Public Radio's This American Life. Roll that tape, Caitlin. Like many parts of the financial system these days, credit default swaps are so complicated, simple bankers couldn't have created them. They were invented by people like this guy, Greg Berman. Uh, actually, my formal training is in physics. So I studied experimental physics and nuclear physics before joining finance in 1993. Now, just to be clear, Greg didn't invent these things. But he works for a company, Risk Metrics Group, which you won't be surprised to learn, helps people manage risk. And so he thinks about them a lot. And he's good at explaining what they are. Imagine, he says, you buy a bond from Ford for $100. You're holding the bond, and you are worried about Ford's credit. So you enter into an agreement with another party where you say to the other party, I will pay you some money. I'll pay you 2% a year, 3% a year, 4% a year. Uh, and what you need to do is give me protection. If Ford should go bankrupt, then I'm going to give you back this perhaps worthless bond, and you're going to give me my $100 back. In the big context of things, it looks like insurance. So, insurance? That's what we're talking about here? People with bonds, which are already considered pretty safe, trying to make them safer? Well, it didn't stay that way. I think Mae West once said it very, very well when she said, I used to be Snow White, but I drifted. This is Shutajit Das. He goes by Das. He's a risk consultant who was around when credit default swaps first appeared. NPR economics correspondent Adam Davidson and I talked to him and heard stories from his 30 years working with hedge funds and bankers all over the world as a sort of financial hired gun. He saw firsthand how what started as insurance morphed into something else entirely. In the 1990s, he says, he was a fan of credit default swaps. But by about 2003, 2004, I was starting to get very nervous because what I could see was the market had gone from a very legitimate purpose to something which was much more racy and interesting, but also much more dangerous. So, so these clearly had stopped being insurance somewhere along the way. Oh, absolutely. It stopped being insurance. And it became and gambling? Think, well, you know, the, the line between investing and speculation or gambling in financial markets is always a pretty gray one. But yes. So how did we get from one of the safest activities on the planet, insurance, to one of the riskiest, gambling? Well, there's one key difference between an insurance policy and a credit default swap. Again, here's Greg Berman. The way that I first described the credit default swap is that you own the bond and you'd like to transfer that risk to someone else. Uh, but what if I want to buy protection, but I don't own the bond? So why would I buy protection on a bond I don't own? 
Isn't that like buying fire insurance on a house I don't own? It is exactly like buying insurance for a house that you don't own. So it's like you took out fire insurance on your home, and now I also took out fire insurance on your home, and a thousand other people took out fire insurance on your home. When that happens, what you're doing is you're betting on the house. So did you get that? A CDS allows people to get paid off by insuring something they don't own. Not a house in this case, but a bond. And here's how it works. A credit default swap is what they call an over-the-counter instrument, meaning it's not something that's traded publicly on an exchange, like a stock. It's a private deal between two people. Those two people can be anyone. Well, anyone with more than $5 million. So that means effectively someone at an investment bank or a hedge fund or at a big commercial bank like Citibank or Credit Suisse, they all have credit default swap desks. Now, every day, the people at this desk are getting thousands of emails and calls from people wanting to enter into credit default swap contracts with them. Sometimes the people calling want it for insurance. They have a bond from, say, the ABC company, but they're a little worried about the ABC company's financial health. They call the people at the credit default swap desk and they say, will you sell me credit default swap protection? Will you guarantee that if the ABC company goes down, you'll guarantee the full value of the bond? But sometimes, often, Das says, they don't have the bond. They just have a hunch about the ABC company. So they want to essentially bet that ABC company will default. So he and I agree that if ABC company defaults, I will pay him a certain amount. And in return, he pays me some fees. Das says that during his time in the industry, the amount of credit default swaps that were speculative grew to dwarf the amount that were actually used for insurance. The numbers are staggering. There are $5 trillion worth of bonds issued in the world. But the total amount that people have bet on those bonds is over $50 trillion. That means that for every one person using a credit default swap to insure a bond, there are more than 10 people using a credit default swap to bet on it. And there's one more thing. All of this is unregulated, partly because they wanted it to be unregulated. This is Andrew Ang, a professor at Columbia University Business School, who studies the credit default swap market. One of the reasons that they wanted it to be unregulated has to do with a word that you hear a lot when you talk to finance people. That word is leverage. Here, I'll show you. When you operate on leverage, the market had become extremely driven by its lust for leverage. Part of the problem with these swap contracts, they actually have extraordinarily high leverage. You see what I mean? Well, here's what they mean by leverage. Say I have a hedge fund with $100 million, and I want to make a killing in the credit default swap market. I start calling and emailing to all those credit default swap desks and hedge funds out there, saying, I'm selling protection. Who wants to buy? Someone calls me and says, I have a billion-dollar bond from Lehman Brothers. I want to insure it. I say, great, I will insure your bond if you agree to pay me 2% of its value every year. You say, all right, and we're in business. Now, let's review these numbers. 2% of a billion dollars, that's 20 million, which I get every year. My hedge fund, 100 million. So I've signed one piece of paper, and in five years, I've doubled my money. I'm psyched, my investors are psyched. That is the upside of leverage. I'm making profits on a billion dollars, even though I only have 100 million. The downside of leverage is that now I'm on the hook for up to a billion dollars if the bond defaults, and I don't have a billion. 
In 2005, this particular bet on a Lehman Brothers bond seemed like a sure thing. The idea that Lehman Brothers, one of the oldest and largest investment banks in the world, could possibly default seemed crazy. In 2008, it became scarily, unbelievably real. Scarily, unbelievably real. Perfect for Halloween. So scary. Now, Adam, while we were out reporting on our awesome, ultra-secret, ultra-awesome story, which we're hoping to start revealing over the weekend, this guy, Sajajit Das, who helped Alex Bloomberg through credit default swaps, actually came by our studios the other day, and we sat him down in the chair, and he took a lot of questions about credit default swaps. The first question came from a listener named Jay Green, who asked whether credit default swaps are still a problem and whether there's still an obstacle to fixing what's deeply wrong in the financial structure right now that's causing the crisis. I think they are a problem, but let me explain a little bit why they're a problem. Because essentially what all derivatives do, and credit derivatives in particular, is tie everybody in financial markets together. And what the real test of credit derivatives, and think about it as insurance, is going to be when the real economy, that's jobs, companies, earnings come down, and we're going to see some defaults. Some big companies get into trouble, and then these credit default swaps are going to be triggered, and then we'll really see exactly what happens. And everybody said that the Lehman's problem wasn't a problem because it settled. But don't forget, people lost round about probably somewhere between 350 and $550 billion on Lehman's. So the pool of money available to meet these credit default swaps got reduced. So we'll have to wait and see whether they're a problem. So when people say the Lehman debt was settled, is that the report that came out and said that it had all been settled for a few, was it billion or Six million? billion. Six, Six billion. billion. That's kind of a misleading figure because that's only one part of the credit insurance that was done on Lehman's. Now, what actually was settled is pretty much trades between about 390 professional counterparties. And what they do is because they don't actually want to go and do the proper settlement, which is you take a piece of paper like a bond and deliver it and get the full face value. They just basically do a notional settlement based on an assumed value of what the bond is worth. And that's all the professional counterparties who settled. And because they have net positions, the net cash that flowed was very little. However, there's another universe of real people who've really hedged the debt they had in Lehman's, which is gradually going through the process, so that that number covers only a small part of what's actually going on. Why why weren't the other people who had the, the hedged positions, why weren't they involved in this? Why did they get sort of a separate track for settling their problem? Because if you own a Lehman bond or have made a loan to Lehman Brothers you want to get your money back. And the easiest way to do is find the counterparty who sold you the insurance, give them the bond, and get whatever the bond was worth when you bought it. Right. So it's just better for you because there's no risk in doing that process. Ah, okay. So it's really the people who loan Lehman Brothers the money in the first place who wanted it done that way. Correct. And in the second group of people, it's who's in there? There's the people who are betting on whether Lehman's was going to live or die. Because as you know, in part, the credit default swap market or the credit insurance market has two components. The real market, which is I've lent money and I want to immunize myself from loss. The second part of the market is people who are just basically taking bets on whether Lehman survives or doesn't survive. And that second group is the predominant group that got represented in the settlement that was reported. And they're on the hook for? They're on the hook net because most trading houses like investment banks like Goldman Sachs and so forth would have net. In other words, they've bought protection 
which is essentially they've hedged their risk, and they've sold protection, which is they've taken the risk, the net positions are actually quite small because they don't have large open positions. Most of the money they make is from the difference in the fees they get and the fees they pay. Okay. Here's one. Why can't Treasury or some other government agency make the credit default swaps retroactively null and void and thereby eliminate their amplification of the downturn in the markets? Of course they can. The government can do whatever they like. But then the question becomes, is that fair in a so-called capitalist system where people have done things based on certain assumptions about what the contract was? And essentially, if you bought credit insurance and you paid your fees, now you find the contract null and void, you're not really happy. And if you got those fees, you're happy as happy could be because you're off the hook. So the way to do it would be to rewrite the contract so everybody gave back everything. But then there would be a second problem. If I really own debt and I hedged it, I'm no longer hedged, so I'm exposed to the underlying name. So it's, it's very hard to do it in a way which is fair. So what we need is a time machine which we can go backwards in time. That's that'll do it. Yeah. And that's the way to do it. And we can't. If the government were to declare all the credit default swaps retroactively null and void, it seems to me that some of the groups that would be hurt would be sort of ordinary pension funds and that kind of thing, people who had lent money to groups like Lehman Brothers. I think that's right. And that's the unfairness issue again that comes out. So that makes it really, really hard. And you'd have to have some divine power sitting there saying how that's to be done fairly. That's really hard. Yeah, nobody really wants that to happen. Suchajit Das, thank you so much. And don't worry, we are going to keep hammering away at credit default swaps as long as they are a threat to the economy, as long as they are a confusing, troubling, important thing to understand, Planet Money will be there. In fact, next week, we're going to have part two of Alex's really great story, uh, which also did air in a different form on Chicago Public Radio's This American Life. And we'll also have more next week, Laura, from from DAS. Yeah, lots more from DAS, talking about how they sell these things off in auctions. For me, I just need to hear credit default swaps over and over again. Every time I hear it, it seeps in. I get some more. You get some more. It, 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 I, I feel like it's like learning a foreign language. It's just all of a sudden you realize, wait a second, I'm thinking about credit default swaps without forcing my brain to do it. It's just happening. For now, Laura, I think that is a podcast. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks for listening and have a very happy Halloween. Halloween.